Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right, take your Bibles this morning and open to the Gospel of John chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to use one, there are some of the black Bibles under the chairs in front of you. Uh, it's page 904 in those Bibles. I want to encourage you. We're going to look at John 18. And today's message title is, is the battle of the ages. The battle of the ages. And what I did this morning is I gave you all of the illustrations for the sermon up front. So I'll refer back to those uh, throughout the message. But, but I want you to understand because... Because what we're talking about in the testimonies and in the devotional thought that Larry shared are not in some way disconnected or something other than what we're talking about here today. It's the real-time look into the battle of the ages that we're speaking of. Even this morning, if I could just give you a quick rundown between text and conversations, between those things that the people, even among our church and, and that are associated with our church, some of the church planters that we've helped to plant are wrestling with struggles, with battles, things that are real, things that are life-threatening, things that are engaging, and there doesn't seem in many of those situations to be an immediate solution, if any solution at all. What I want you to realize this morning is that what we're talking about grants to us a solution like none other. For not only the battles that rage around us, but the battles that rage within us. This is the battle of the ages that we see today. Go to verse 1. Let's set the context for the scripture that we're going to look at today. And I'm going to walk through the verses without reading all of them uh, for the sake of time. But let me begin with verse 1 through 3 of John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook, Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons." Let's stop there for just a moment. Big picture of where we're at. We've just finished John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is where Jesus prays for all believers. He prays for those who are his immediate disciples. He prays that the cross and the sacrifice he's about to make on the cross will be glorified so people will see, hear, and believe. And he prays for those who will hear the testimony of his disciples into the future that they too would believe in him and receive eternal life. He's finished all of his earthly teaching. And we know that just a few chapters before, they were in the upper room. They were having what we know of as the Last Supper around the table when Jesus instituted for us what we know today as the Lord's Supper. And in the midst of that, Judas, one of his intimate 12, one of the men who was closest to him while he walked on the earth, left kind of abruptly and no one really knew why. And for the first time, Judas reappears in the scriptures. 
And if you can imagine the abruptness with which he reappears, understand this, that when he comes back into the garden, he comes to a place of what I would call intimate friendship with the disciples. This is a place that Jesus often took his disciples to go and pray, to rest, to spend time with one another and getting away from the chaos and, and, and that was ensuing in that day and time. And so here in this intimate place where their friendship had been established, all of a sudden Judas re-enters the scene and he's got a band of soldiers that are weaponized with them. And for the first time, those disciples who had abruptly watched Judas leave very shortly before see him come back and think to themselves with the immediacy, oh, he's back. But wait, why is he with the soldiers And Judas places a kiss on Jesus' cheek, identifying him as the one who would be arrested. And with immediacy, all of the other disciples realize that their betrayer was one that was at the most intimate level of friendship with them. Judas would betray the Lord Jesus and his brothers as well. And that's what's taking place in these first six verses Judas brings the soldiers to arrest Jesus, and the disciples begin to understand all that Jesus had been telling them. You see, he used a knowledge that was gained from close association, from an intimate friendship, and he used it to strike betrayal to all of them. Friends, Judas lived a lie, and what he thought would be for his profit because he gained 30 pieces of silver by handing over Jesus, would ultimately become his exposure. Jesus, therefore, knowing what would happen, if we continued through verse 11 here, it says that Jesus Jesus saw the guards coming and, and actually went to them, and he said to them, whom do you seek? And when they responded to him, Jesus of Nazareth, he said this to him, I am he. And in verse 6, it tells us that when he spoke the words, I am he, it literally caused them to fall back onto the ground. In other words, I am was one of the statements, not only of God in the Old Testament to reveal who he was, but it was one that Jesus used to identify himself as one with God. And here he speaks the words and it literally blows them off of their feet. That's what John records. And so Roman soldiers who were, let's just say, bad dudes of the day, okay, get up, dust off their skirts because that's what they wore, you know. You got to be really bad to wear one of those and be okay with it. You know what I'm saying? And came back and Jesus said, sorry, I ask you a question. Who are you here for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And so they arrest him. Of course, there's the incursion with Peter taking his sword and striking the ear of one of the soldiers and Jesus taking that ear and putting it back in place. But here's the thing that's most striking to me in these first 11 verses as we've seen Judas come out and betray the Lord Jesus. Jesus never condemns Judas. Never. He never blames him. He never speaks a cross word to him. He never casts a look of condemnation towards him. Jesus never blames Judas, who was the closest one to him and betrayed him the worst. He was never ashamed to speak of him. 
He was never ashamed to say what he had done to him. Why? We can only understand that Jesus had the full understanding of the Father in his own life at this point for what he was doing. And Judas, even though he would betray him to the uttermost, was no threat because Jesus was not being overtaken. Here, Jesus was laying down his life. We see, even in the way he approached the guards, he is the one initiating. He is the one pursuing his path to the cross. Jesus loved unconditionally and ever offered every opportunity to repent, even to his betrayer. But Judas's life was marked, friends, by a lie. So next we see that that lie that Judas's life was marked by leading to its source, the religious leaders. In verses 12 through 14, and then ultimately verses 19 to 24, the soldiers who were Roman soldiers arrested Jesus and took him to Annas. Now, Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest. And you have to understand the political structure of that day. The Romans ruled, but when the Romans took over an area, they allowed the people in that area to continue to exercise, to a measured extent, the law and order of that area. And so they allowed the Jews to continue to exercise the authority that they could. There were just certain things they couldn't do. And if things got out of control, the Romans would come in and establish their peace by a rather heavy hand. It's called the Pax Romana. It was the theme of the Roman uh, 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 kingdom. But here's what happens. They take him to Annas, who's the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And really, what we see in the, the religious ruler hierarchy and authority and control here is a playbook straight out of what we would call the mafia. I mean, it's total darkness, power, domination, and intimidation. The only thing that the religious leaders couldn't do in that day was to take you out. And that's why they needed the Romans, because they had the authority to kill. Annas didn't want his son-in-law Caiaphas to have to do the dirty work. I mean, after all, he's the high priest and the high priest shouldn't have to get his hands dirty doing some of the messier work. So I'll take care of that for him. They bring Jesus in and he begins to question Jesus. Annas does, or you might say um, intimidate or try to intimidate him. He's laying out the plan that Caiaphas had given to them. Caiaphas earlier said it would be most expedient for the Jewish people if one man would die for them. You hear the prophecy in that. And yet they were thinking one man could die to get the Romans off their back for all the chaos that was being created. But God had a bigger plan. And in the midst of their ploy, Jesus shows no fear. Not before the soldiers when they arrest him. Not before Annas when he tries to intimidate and coerce him. But there is plenty of fear present. And it's mostly raising its ugly head by the intimidation that's trying to be implemented by the religious leaders. They question Jesus. He says to Jesus, what are you teaching and why have you done this? And Jesus says to him, all of my teaching has been in public and been in the very places you've been. I've not 
tried to hide anything, but I've set it all out there. Ask anyone who was around. And at that moment, it tells us that the guard slapped him. You see, that was the problem. Jesus was teaching in such a way that he gave hope and authority for life to the people that the religion had never provided for them. And the religious rulers didn't like that. That was the very problem itself. And so those who deceived him and were devising the plan to deceive the people, here they are. Imagine this, the religious rulers looking into the very eye of truth in flesh and propagating a lie to deceive people. Of course, they didn't want the people to know what they were doing. And how does Jesus respond when a known lie This is good personal application, friends. When a known lie is hurled against them, how does Jesus respond? But with appealing to the truth as his testimony, even though they shrouded that truth in false accusation in order to condemn him and carry out their own plan. Notice that. Well, in verses 15 to 18 and then down in verses 25 to 27, John shows us that the disciples are trying to figure out what's going on. They've been thrown into chaos. That Jesus, who had been with them the whole time, was now arrested and he was gone from them. And a couple of them tried to get close to the places where they were interrogating Jesus because they wanted to hear what was taking place. They still didn't understand that he would have to die in the way that he would die. It was just too much to imagine. And so John is over here in the shadows trying to listen and watch what's taking place. And Peter walks up to the outer court where a fire is burning. And people are warming themselves around the fire because it's on a cold night. It's a kind of chill to the bones we can't imagine. When God himself is being put on trial and being condemned by a lie propagated by those who want to take him out. And this little servant girl, innocent servant girl, comes up to Peter and goes, hey, you were with him, weren't you? And Peter goes, no, no, and and violently tells her, absolutely not, that's not true. And and just a a few short minutes later, others said to him around the same fire, well, sure, you've been with him, we've seen you with him. And Peter, growing ever more angst-driven and and, and upset about it, also refuses them. And, And a few moments later, one of the relatives, John tells us, of the Roman soldier whose ear Peter severed with the sword, so, so this person's got some reason to be upset at Peter, right? Says, you absolutely were with him. And you are the one who's been with him all along. And Peter now, having to use every ounce of energy he can muster, goes to cursing and condemning the people to deny the very truth that they were purporting to him. And in that instant... In the fulfillment of God's word, the rooster crowed and reminded him of what Jesus had told him, that before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Friends, at this point in the night, Jesus is all alone. Everyone who was a comfort and an encouragement to him in the world is now gone. He's all alone in front of the authorities who are seeking to take his life Because they fabricated a lie. But I want you to know they're too late to that party. 
because Jesus has already laid his life down. He's already given himself up to the will of the Father and he's allowing them to carry out the lie that they've propagated and the way that they think they're serving their own power struggle in order for the will of God to be fulfilled at the hands of evil people. And so we see that they now lead Jesus, verse 38, or 28 to 32, they lead Jesus to Pilate, who is the Roman governor over that area, and into his headquarters. And Pilate comes out to the people, and he says, what's the charge? And they go, well, he's, a, he, he's blasphemous. And, and there's really no facts. There's just really generic assumptions of condemnation. And so they just say to him, we want you to deal with the matter. We can't deal with it anymore. He needs to be put to death for what he's doing. But the Jews can't kill him because they don't have that power to kill him. They have to use and manipulate the Romans who will enact the death sentence up on him. And John reminds us throughout this that, that they are fulfilling what God has already said will happen. They're just characters in the drama. But friends, we should also understand this, that as we watch the religious leaders perpetrate this lie and the Roman authorities hear the lie, know it's a lie, but see that the lie can actually serve them and their own purposes better, here's what we begin to see, that the web that a lie weaves in life entangles all who fall prey to its deception by simply allowing it to serve their own good instead of standing for the good of truth in the midst of it. And so Pilate comes back in to question Jesus. It's frightening how close that one can stand to truth manifested. See it and hear it and yet miss it. Don't think that any of us are above that either. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, do you believe that? Or are you just repeating what you've heard? And Pilate says, I'm not a Jew. I don't even care. And Jesus says to him in, verse, um, in, in chapter 18, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. In other words, I would have engaged the battle the way y'all are fighting it. But Jesus says, I haven't. And there's a reason for that. The next verse. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? But he said it not wanting to know but to dismiss the one who is in front of him. And then the Bible tells us, Pilate goes back out to the crowd, tells him, I see no fault in him, but for your sake, how nice of Pilate to do something for the people. I will release to you, as is your custom, one criminal. You can have Jesus released, or you can have Barabbas released, a multiple felon offender in our day in measurement of justice who was the vilest of criminals in that day and the crowd cried out in one voice release Barabbas to us and the unspoken was crucify him crucify him and Pilate washes his hands because his being caught in the lie is over He's made the people feel better about him, but he thinks it's not on him 
to condemn Jesus to death. You see, friends, lies deceive us, they damage us, and they destroy us. Judas lived under the dark deception of a lie. The Pharisees fabricated and propagated the lie so that they could accomplish their plan and retain their worldly power. The political rulers of that day put up with it so that they could prosper under the lie. It was not their lie, and yet they used it to their advantage, being caught in its web themselves. The disciples were confused. They were running scared from the lie that was being propagated and how it was just unfurling in their world and turning into complete chaos. And the people who were caught up in the lie were cursed by it and never knew it because they were deceived under it. And yet they were suffering under that same deception. Friends, understand this. The smallest lie casts the longest shadow of deception under its unbelief. But a lie always overestimates its effectiveness. Don't miss that. This struggle for power is what I call the battle of the ages. And there will only be one victor who will emerge. For here, we see the powers of the world face off. In the black corner, we have the worldly power represented by the power among the people or the political powers of that day. And while they would say, we're having no part of this, they will be the ones who will carry out the evil plan devised for them. They will be the ones that will crucify Jesus. And in the other corner is what I would call the white-washed corner. White-washed in the sense that's what Jesus referred to the religious leaders of because he said this, you wash the outside of your pot thinking you can make everybody feel good about you in this world, but the deception is your heart is as evil as any. You are white-washed tombs, clean on the outside, wicked and evil on the inside. And the worldly powers of religion and power among people face off. Friends, the world's struggle for power is nothing more than a stalemate, unable to solve ultimate problems. Problems of this world, but I would also say to you, problems of your heart and its struggles as well. And in the midst of this great power struggle stands Jesus, unmoved by his struggle and the struggle around him for power. You see, friends, the world's struggle for power reveals the war that is for the Christian life and of the Christian life. That's why I call it the battle of the ages. For spiritual warfare takes the struggles of the heart and projects them onto the grand IMAX of life. It confounds the world because there's no power structure that can handle what's taking place. And there's no authority to resolve the ultimate issues. Every power battle leads to this one ultimate question. What is truth? And that's at the center of the battle of the ages. That's at the center of the battle for the human heart and the human life. In the midst of that struggle, I say to you today that truth stands for anyone who will hear it and heed it. Because Jesus stands firm at the center of the battle for power that rages all around because only he holds all authority over all of it. 
Jesus says this, that I was born for this purpose. I was born to bring victory for life by truth to all who will believe. I want to ask you today, how do you stand firm amidst the power struggles of this world? Those around you and those that rage within you. Jesus stands firm and he doesn't struggle, but he's always victorious. Today, friends, I want you to see that Christians live in Jesus' victory when he centers life by walking in him as truth. We live in Jesus' victory when he centers our life by walking in him as truth. The same truth that stood unshaken in the midst of this battle between worldly powers is the same one that holds us firm stable and centered no matter what rages around us no matter what rages within us Jesus gives victory over every battle in the world and in the heart and the one the one who lives with Jesus at the center lives from his ultimate victory in life the person with Jesus at the center of their life lives in his victory by walking in his truth if you will listen and believe to walk in him as that truth. I want to share with you this morning four recognitions to center your life on Jesus that you might walk in his truth and live in his victory. Number one, recognize that Jesus is the truth who holds all authority. He tells Pilate, I was born for this reason, to bear witness to the revelation of the truth of God. You see, the truth is God's word, the Bible says, that is breathed out and that is clothed in flesh in Jesus to reveal God to us. And when one believes in Jesus Christ, they receive life by the Spirit of God in order to walk by the counsel or the guidance of that Spirit in the light of his truth. That's what his word tells us. And so when we recognize Jesus as truth, we place our life by by faith under his authority revealed in his word for the strength to stand in the midst of those battles. But if you don't recognize that Jesus is the truth, just like the Pharisees who looked him in the eye and denied him, just like the Roman rulers who looked him in the eye and dismissed him, you and I can look him in the same eye today and dismiss him, not recognizing him. As truth. Friends, I want to ask you when the battles and the struggles rage, Jesus is always present with all authority to guide you in his truth. Have you stopped to recognize him as truth? The second recognition I would give to you is this recognize that you must be born again to walk in his truth. Jesus tells Pilate this that he came for this revelation to bear witness to the truth. And in that witness, everyone who is of the truth will hear and receive it. You see, they did not hear the truth and listen to it to receive it because they were not of the truth. They didn't listen to him because they weren't sourced from him. 
And friends, unbelief in our heart hears the same words that everyone else hears, but reduces the truth of those words that are revealed in Jesus Christ to nothing more than simple white noise for life. It's just filler, and because of that, it's dismissed. A person must be of the truth in order to receive it as truth and to walk in a personal relationship with Jesus, who is the truth. In John 3, we see this. Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees himself, came to Jesus early on in his teaching ministry. And here's what he said. We Pharisees know that you have come from God. How did they miss it? How did they miss it? Because, friends, knowledge about truth is not the same as knowing the truth and having it of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says you must be born again to Nicodemus. It's not you must intellectually ascend. You must be born again once you are born of water into physical life. But the spirit life is born of the spirit. And when the spirit of God lives within you by repenting of your sins and receiving the sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross... There is a new birth to a new life that is sourced from the presence of God in you. That's what it means when Jesus said, everyone of the truth. That little word of means that our life is sourced from him and lived in him. Born again by the spirit of truth means our life is sourced and guided by the truth from our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, born again means that a person lives in that personal relationship with God through Jesus. His presence is in us by his spirit. And living in that relationship with Jesus means that you love him such that you listen and obey him. Sometimes we think of hate being the opposite of love, and it's really not. The opposite of love is just ignoring, acting as if you don't exist. Francois Fenelon, I love speaking French, is a French middle-aged theologian that said this, and I think it's very insightful for us here. You can only know truth to the degree that you love. Love the truth, and you will understand the truth. You see, friends, a lack of love for Jesus means that his teachings and his commands always seem too much. I, I just don't see. That's, you ask too much of me. They, they always make his teachings seem too far-fetched, even, even ridiculous. Lord, how could you even imagine that that would work in this situation? And you see, what you've done is you've taken truth. You've looked it in the eye when you know what God's word says and you've said no to it. You've looked truth in the eye and you've dismissed it just like the Pharisees and the Roman rulers did. You've made the word of God white noise to your life. That's just filler. Satisfying some kind of religious obligation or some kind of power battle. You want God to use for what you want him to use for, but you don't want to have to be all that he says you are in him. And friends, until you obey his word, his power cannot be made known because it will never be understood by you. You'll never experience the power of God so that you understand it until you submit to it to live in it. 
That's what a personal relationship with Jesus is all about. Truth is not merely propositional facts or knowledge. Truth is a living person. And when your life is sourced out of the Lord Jesus Christ because of the new life he has put in you so that you live in Jesus Christ to walk in obedience to him as truth, then the power of God comes real in your life to bring new understanding of God into your mind. That's how he works here. And I want to ask you today, has life from God been breathed into you through the Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus so that you hear the word of God and listen to receive it as your source of life and not just another option to choose from in life? Until you recognize that Jesus is truth and you recognize him as the, uh, being born again is the only way to be of the truth, you will never hear it. And believe it so that you love him more because of it. The third recognition is this. Recognize Jesus as your source in order to determine your power for battle. Listening to Jesus as your source means you hear to heed him as truth. He's revealed his truth by his words and his works. That's what he told us in chapter 16. You see, recognizing Jesus as your source means that you trust his authority, not only for your power, but for how you engage the battles of your heart. Paul instructs us this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, in other words, in this physical world, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Who wages war in that way? The power structures of the world. That's how they wage war. Paul says, we don't wage war that way. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but rather they have divine power to destroy strongholds. That's why Jesus stood unmoved at the center of the power battles that were raging. And he says, you know, if I wanted to fight you, Pilate, we wouldn't have this conversation right now. You know that, right? But I don't fight the battles the way you fight the battles. Paul says this, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We walk in Jesus as truth when we wage war with him as our source, with his weapons of divine power that break down the strongholds that are enslaving us and we engage by his truth as our battle strategy for obedience. If you fight the world's battles with the world's weapons and walk in the world's wisdom, you will only gain, you can only gain what the world will give you. And no one can guarantee if you will win, but we can guarantee you this, the prize will not be worth it. When Jesus is your source, you live by his power. And he has all authority over any power. And he is always greater than whatever threatens and whatever attacks because he has already overcome. You see, the reason Jesus stood unmoved in the face of the religious leaders and in the face of the Roman rulers, because even though he had not hung on the cross yet, he was confident about his victory coming off of that cross. And you and I have seen the story he is taken down from the cross, a dead man put in the grave, and he walked out of his own accord. 
to demonstrate his authority. Jesus is always the right power for life's battles because only he gives victory every time. Friends, if I ran into a fire with a water pistol, it may still be true that water quenches fire, but it won't matter that I showed up at the fire. Why? Because a water pistol as a source to fight a major fire is always an insufficient and ineffective for the real battle. And any time we wage war in this world with any authority other than Jesus himself, it's ineffective and it's insufficient to win the real war that's raging in the midst of our life. Jesus' authority is incomparable and his power is unlimited. But you must recognize Jesus as your source by fighting with divine power of truth to walk in his victory. The fourth recognition that I give to you this morning is this. You must recognize that in Jesus, when all you can do has been done, you will still stand firm. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and 13, Paul instructs, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He's talking about these two recognitions we just finished. And here's what he says about the fourth recognition. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. There's not a question of whether you will. It's just simply a statement as Jesus shows us that you will. When you find self in power struggles of this world, friends, you will have to fight, but you will not fight alone. When you feel the pressure of the battle, make sure you are clear on where Jesus stands. Trust him and stay with him. For where he is, truth will prevail. No matter what the situation, what the circumstance, what his word says to us is his truth for life to us. All that looks like a loss in this life and all that may try to make you feel and look like a loser in this world, hear me, isn't. Isn't. Jesus went to the cross And he was laid in the tomb. That looks like a loss and that made him look like a loser. But he did not stay there and neither shall we. When by faith you stand with Jesus, you may feel buried at times because he was buried for you. But you will be raised in truth because he was resurrected. Christians live in Jesus' victory when he centers our life by walking in him as truth. Let's pray.